2: This is the John Fuglesang
3: Podcast. Serious XM Progress. Welcome to it. I'm John Fuglesang. Welcome to the Night Spot. This is Progress After Dark, produced by the great Chris Hauselt and the great Thea Harper. And we are so glad that you are with us. So glad you're surviving the heat. For the next three hours, we're going to be coming at you. With music and with comedy and with facts and with empathy and science and history, Professor Corey Bretschneider will be here tonight to explain, well, among other things, what's going on with the Israeli Supreme Court. Because it's getting kind of weird over there. um, And uh, I need some help uh, making sense of it all. Sam Friedman is going to be here as well. He has a terrific, amazing new biography of Hubert Humphrey. Someone who is remembered for all the wrong reasons and not remembered for the right reasons. He's one of the greatest heroes of the Democratic Party, becoming the party of civil rights. Sadly, he's known too much these days for losing his presidential race and for standing by while LBJ invaded Vietnam, uh, or at least escalated in Vietnam. Um, It's a really, really great book about a complex and profoundly decent American who made some mistakes, but was still one of the greatest liberals of the 20th century. We got so much to cover. Let's do a show, shall we? I I hope you guys are, are okay. I hope that you're taking care of yourself. Please, if you have air conditioning, use it. If you're terrified of the AC bill, use fans. Please check in on old people. Check in on animals. July will be Earth's hottest month in recorded history, in case you needed to be told that. But scientists have declared it and they have warned us. The future will be worse than the July we are now wrapping up. We're only five days away from August, and the extreme weather going all across the globe hasn't just been deadly. It's It's been very, very expensive, and it's going to continue into the new month. Today in New York, I got my nephew staying with me. Charmy was down in D.C. at a conference. I got I got Henry, my, my, my child, my horrible kid I'm living with, so I'm, I'm sort of like guy with two kids. And I thought, well, it's a real feel of 100 degrees. There's a heat advisory saying don't go outside. There's an air quality advisory saying don't go outside. So, we should stick to the plan and take the kids to Coney Island. And by we, I mean me. It was hot. Let me just say that. It, it was it was so hot. But my God, it was so hot all the chalk body outlines were runny. It was it was really hot. And um you don't want to go on roller coasters When it's too hot to breathe. That's what I learned today. I'll be appearing later on the cover of uh, Unfit Parent magazine. Let's talk about the heat a bit more because Joe Biden today, in a story you won't hear too much on the news, actually ordered the Labor Department to issue a hazard alert and to ramp up enforcement to protect American workers from extreme heat. I want you to listen to this. Here is Joe Biden doing what no one on the news seems willing to do. Explain calmly, simply the role of climate change. In this accelerating cycle of extreme weather including this blistering heat we are all trying to get through
4: i don't think anybody can deny the impact of the climate change anymore there used to be a lot of time when i first got here a lot of people said oh it's not a problem well i don't know anybody i shouldn't say that i don't know anybody who honestly believes climate change is not a serious problem <laughs> just take a look at the historic floods in vermont and california earlier this year droughts and hurricanes that are growing more frequent and intense, wildfires spreading a smoky haze for thousands of miles, worsening air quality. The record temperatures, and I mean record, are now affecting more than 100 million Americans. Puerto Rico reached a 125 degree heat index last month. San Antonio hit an all-time heat index high of 117 last month. Phoenix, has been over 110 degrees for 27 straight days. And with El Nino and the short-term warming of the ocean, that exacerbates the effects of climate change, making forecasts even hotter in the coming months. Ocean temperatures near Miami are like stepping in a hot tub. They just topped 100 degrees, 100 degrees, and they're hitting record highs around the world. And that's more like, as I said, jumping in a hot tub than jumping in an ocean to ride a wave.
3: Now, the Labor department's going to help ensure that employees are aware of their rights, including protections against retaliation and increased inspections on the high risk industries like construction and agriculture with heat like this. Here's Biden again going on to announce some immediate steps to help workers during extreme heat.
4: Today, I'm announcing additional steps to help states and cities deal with the consequences of extreme heat. first. I've asked acting labor secretary julie sue to issue a heat hazard alert it clarifies that workers have a federal heat related have federal heat related protections we should be protecting workers from hazardous conditions and we will and those states where they do not i'm going to be calling them out where they refuse to protect these workers in the, it's awful heat second the acting secretary of labor will work with her team to intensify enforcement, increasing inspections in high-risk industries like construction and agriculture. This work builds on the national standards the Labor Department is already developing for workforce and workplace heat safety rules.
3: I like playing clips like that on a show like this because cable news is lots of fun. They're not going to play you boring clips of government actually doing things to help American workers. So thank you, Joe Biden. By the way, the economy expanded Uh, Better than expected. 2.4% annual rate in the second quarter. Um, It looks even more so that that recession they've been telling us about might not get here. All right. It's time to play Thirsty Thursday. Who, who, who can't keep their damn mouth shut? Who needs to be on camera so much they'll walk on camera and say things that they shouldn't say just because they want the airtime? Well, (laughs) you know, Kevin McCarthy, God bless him. What do you do when the leader of the Republican Party in the Senate freezes for 30 excruciating seconds in the middle of a speech in the Capitol rotunda and you don't know what to do? Uh, And no one thinks to take Mitch McConnell to the hospital. They just take him away for 20 minutes and send him back out there again. I mean, the man was in a hospital for a head injury just a few months ago. Uh, So, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, here he decided, let me get in front of a camera and say what I think. And you know what he thinks? He's totally cool with Mitch McConnell's completely unknown, undiagnosed, super scary health issue.
0: Let me tell you, I have no concern. I actually met with Leader McConnell twice yesterday after this incident. I met with him at 3 o'clock. He came in. We have a regular meeting. We talk about... The future uh, legislation we have going appropriations, other what's happening in the Senate, and then later that night there was an event on Major League Baseball where he gave a speech and I spoke after him. So no, I have no concern.
3: Fair enough. We talk all the time about, you know, Joe Biden fell yesterday. Well, he got back up. That's what matters. So we all hope that Mitch McConnell's okay. Nobody hopes terrible things happen to him. Keep in mind, uh, this is the Republican Party that couldn't stop saying evil, horrible, shitty things when Nancy Pelosi's husband got his head bashed in with a hammer. But um, you go, Kevy. you know, go ahead and say he has your support. But just (laughs) I hope that tape doesn't exist anymore if this thing goes south with uh, with with McConnell's health. But really, there's no contest. I mean, who's thirstier right now than Ron DeSantis, not Donald Trump. Donald Trump's hiding from the media because they might ask questions about his life, which we're going to get to in a second. Uh, Ron DeSantis is so desperate to become popular with anybody that I'm pretty convinced within the next two weeks he will announce plans to appoint Joe Rogan to his cabinet because... The Republican Party, the conservative movement has just become a thing where child men chase a dude bros for likes. He hasn't quite gotten around to saying he's going to appoint Joe, but uh, here he offers an answer on whether he'd be willing to put Robert F. Kennedy Jr. into his administration.
2: So I just think at the end of the day, you know, you need somebody that's going to reflect the values of the broad coalition. Yes, the medical stuff, I'm very good on that. So that does appeal to me. But there's a whole host of other things that he'd probably be out of step with. And so on that regard, it's like, okay, if you're president, you know, sick him on the FDA, if he'd be willing to serve or sick him on CDC. Uh, But in terms of being veep, if there's, you know, 70 percent of the issues that he may be averse to our base on, you know, that just creates an issue.
3: You understand what he's saying there? He's actually saying, well, no, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. believes in climate science and he respects LGBT people uh, and uh, he respects labor unions, um, but he's willing to push vaccine propaganda. So uh, we like that. That's exactly what you just heard pudgy Floridian coward and future Floridian retiree Ron DeSantis say. Okay, um, now, are you ready? A little part of the show we call these aren't the indictments you're looking for because we're waiting To find out if Trump will be indicted very soon or later, or if anyone in Trump's inner circle will be indicted over the attempts to overthrow our government back on January 6th, 2020, before and after January 6th, 2020. Indictment Watch has been trending on social media all week as we wait to find out if it's going to happen. Now, Trump's legal team met with special counsel Jack Smith today to try to beg him. To please not bring more charges relating to Trump's efforts to steal democracy, because as we like to point out on this show, Donald Trump already has five criminal trials, five trials, not cases going to trial five different trials. He'll have in courtrooms between now and the RNC convention next year. So the federal grand jury is considering the January 6th case they met today but they did not return an indictment so everyone's still like oh another day we've been waiting 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 I mean when when will there be yet another indictment of the GOP frontrunner while this is all happening by the way at the White House Corrine Jean-Pierre ruled out any possibility of Joe Biden ever pardoning his son Hunter whose plea deal fell apart in court yesterday because Republicans appointed by Trump didn't like that other Republicans appointed by Trump got him to plead guilty on something anyway Donald Trump's legal team, you know, they they met with Jack Smith's office previously. You know when that was? The last time they met with him was June 5th, when the classified documents investigation was getting hot. They met on June 5th, and three days later, after Jack Smith told them to expect an indictment, Donald Trump was indicted by a grand jury of U.S. citizens on 37 counts. So, uh, guys, next 72 hours is a pretty good yardstick. But something funny happened today. While we were all waiting for Jack Smith to file charges against Trump in federal court, different from the 37 counts we've already seen from the grand jury in Florida on the January 6th attempt to overthrow our government, blah, blah, blah. While we're waiting for all of this, Jack Smith filed three additional charges against Donald Trump today. Yeah. Three more felony counts. It's up to 40 now. But it's in the previous case for Mar-a-Lago in the documents. The new indictment says that Donald Trump and his flunkies asked the staffer. <laughs> my, uh, my brothers and sisters, they're, what do I always say about American fascists? Bush and Cheney showed it. Trump proved it. They're always more dumb than they are evil. The greatest gift, if there is a God, the greatest gift he or she has given this flawed nation is that our fascists are always stupider than they are destructive. Oh, thank God. So, yeah, um, Donald Trump, you know, has closed-circuit cameras that film everything, and he sent his butler to go move documents and lie to his own lawyer about where the documents was. You know the story. But now they're saying that they asked another staffer to delete closed-circuit camera footage from Mar-a-Lago, which sounds like obstruction of justice uh, if you were a 12-year-old. Now, Trump has been charged with three new counts, one additional count of willful retention of national defense information, two additional obstruction counts related to these alleged attempts to delete the surveillance footage at Mar-a-Lago in the summer. And Jack Smith charged a third defendant, Carlos de Oliveira, in the case. Uh, Trump has been charged, you know, along with his butler and body man, Walt Nauda, on the federal charges related to the retention and handling of classified documents. By retention and handling, they mean stealing and hiding, just so you know. But today, Mr. de Oliveira was a maintenance worker who helped Walt Nauta move boxes of classified docs around Mar-a-Lago after the DOJ subpoenaed Trump to get them back. His name's been mentioned in the case because the surveillance footage showed him moving document boxes around the resort ahead of Trump's having the search of Mar-a-Lago. So, three more indictments on the last case. Um, but according to NBC News, Trump's attorneys were told today to expect a new indictment against Trump from the federal investigation into his efforts to overturn the 2020 presidential election. We don't know for sure. Could be today, could be tomorrow. A lot of Republicans have testified that Trump pressured them with false claims of the widespread voter fraud during the last few weeks he was in office, and it all led up to January 6th, as we all know. Now, Donald Trump said on his website, Filth Social, last week, that he had received a Target letter, from special counsel Jack Smith and Trump's lawyers arrived there today. Apparently it didn't go that great. Donald Trump is already the only former U.S. president to face criminal charges. He's pled guilty in Miami to 37 counts indictment. He'll probably plead guilty to the other three counts. That's again, stealing the documents and retaining them. Um, If an indictment comes down now in the election case, this is going to be the second round of federal charges. From Jack Smith, who was appointed by the Attorney General, and Donald Trump is freaking out every day on his website, calling it a witch hunt, attacking Jack Smith, attacking his family, calling them all Marxists, you know, shit innocent guys do. Can I just say how, how sad it is that Walt Nauta and Carlos de Oliveira can be so scared or brainwashed or dim that they'd be willing to go to prison for Donald Trump? I mean, I'm sure he's going to pay their legal fees, but gentlemen, get your own lawyer. I mean, Donald Trump will throw you under the bus without a second thought. He would do it for his own children. There's a lot of problems this party has, guys. The House majority is just burning everything down. They're at each other's throats. Marjorie Taylor Greene controls the very profoundly weak speaker of the House. The House Republicans have a legislative agenda that disgusts young people, that disgusts women, that disgusts the majority of non-white people in this country. The House Republican Party has a, a voter base that is incredibly loyal, incredibly blindly obedient, and is scared to acknowledge any kind of reality. And they have a standard bearer, a front runner, a leader who will be going through five criminal trials... ...between now and their next convention. It's beautiful, guys. Don't let them gaslight you into being afraid. Fight back, push back on this. There's going to be at least two new criminal cases... ...facing Trump. And they both could reach jury trials by the spring... ...before the RNC in Wisconsin on July 15th next year. Which means... ...if Donald Trump gets even one conviction... And he's been convicted twice this year already in the Eugene Carroll case and the Trump Organization case. But here's what I want you to do to get through the heat for the next 24 hours: just think about this. What if he is convicted in any of the? What if he's convicted in the second Eugene Carroll case? What if he's convicted in the uh, in the pyramid scheme case for the Trump Organization that's coming up first? What if in New York, Alvin Bragg? What if he's convicted there? What if he's convicted of one of these felonies? If he's convicted in any of these cases. It's going to happen before July 15th of next year when the Republican National Convention happens in Wisconsin. Guys, there's going to be a contested convention if Trump gets the nomination. Please stay healthy. Take care of yourself. Watch the alcohol, the drugs, the partying. Try to break a sweat. Do some cardio. Eat healthy. Get enough sleep. I need you alive. It's going to be beautiful. When a convicted felon gets the presidential nomination from the party of Lincoln... And some of the sane ones try to contest it. Because they will. We want to know what you guys think. We're at 866-997-4748, 866-997-GRIT. Let's go to our friend Brian in Oregon. Brian, thank you so much for calling. Hello.
5: What a day, huh?
3: Oh, man. I mean, I thought yesterday was a lot.
5: Oh, God. (laughs) It's unbelievable. It's never ending. Uh, At least Trump can't tweet every day like he did before.
3: No, he can filth every day. That's whatever it's It was
5: Unbelievable. The, um, stay off of roller coasters and got awful heat
3: oh my so, god I mean it was nauseating we, it was the plan all along to bring the kids to the amusement park today and we went we went early enough but uh, whoo, it was It was too hot it was oh, I mean I'm, I'm normally miserable at that time of day but woo this was a lot
5: oh man that's something um, what a dad you are uh, huh. John I got two well I'm going to get this out of my head um, for uh, Jeff the truck driver from last week he was from Virginia yes sir Two things. First, he to me, he sounded a lot like uh, Kendall. I think he had a twinge of uh, Kendall in his back of his voice. He could have been his brother. Okay. Um, uh, just food for thought. That's kind of terrifying.
3: I, but I didn't even notice that. Go ahead.
5: And he, I think um, for him, if he's ever listening, but uh, other people might want to uh, read um, Bury My Heart a Wounded Knee, since you brought what up a Wounded Knee on that call.
3: What a book. Yeah, incredible.
5: So, anyways, that's a spot of history, I'm sure, that's going to be banned from schools as well. Hmm. Um, but um, then for Sinead O'Connor's thing, I had a thought rolling around that <laughs> these people go nuts and torture her with criticism and stuff. It's just a fucking picture she rips up. I mean, yeah, to me, it's just so... Insightful. Can the can they ripped up
3: picture? Can they rip up picture show where the singer heard it? I mean, they're they're more angry again, but this is this is what happens with right-wing people. They get locked into this complete state of always being fight or flight. The same people who are more angry at protests against police brutality than police brutality. They're more angry at protests against racism than they are at racism. The people who are more angry at the Black Lives Matter protests after Uh, Derek Chauvin killed George Floyd than they were ever angry at Derek Chauvin for killing George Floyd. These are the same people who are more angry that Sinead O'Connor tore up a photo of John Paul than they are angry that John Paul covered up child rape. They are so brainwashed to be blindly obedient that they're more angry that that, that a photograph was hurt than they're angry that children were hurt.
5: It's just obscene. And and it shows to me how insecure in their own religious... Yeah. solidity well it shows to me are. that
3: she was always the real Christian she yeah. was always and, the truer Christian always
5: and also it happens with the Islamic faith remember the what Charlie Hebdo and the, there was another Belgian uh, newspaper or something that did a cartoon of uh, Muhammad, and half of Pakistan erupts into protests for weeks or, or yeah. a week and it just yeah. I just don't understand it it just seems really uh, kind of crazy
3: you're completely right yeah, <laughs> that's it. That's what we got. That's the playing field we've been we've inherited. Welcome. <laughs>
5: that's it. Grab that's
3: a absolutely. polo mallet and go get get in the ring.
5: Yeah, yeah God. Anyways, and uh, my other thought for uh, if you, people say Tim Scott's, uh surging in the polls, yeah, ask him what, how uh, how his uh, police reform bill came, went and how uh, how much effort he put into that
3: after yeah, uh, George Floyd. I know, I know. But that's Tim Scott, right? I mean, that's all of them. Like, like 10 years ago, they, they saw which way the wind was going and thought, hey, wow, Romney lost. Let's let's do an immigration reform bill. And they all got behind it. The Gang of Eight, Marco Rubio. And then the Fox oh, yeah. News focus groups called it called it a, a, a amnesty. And so they abandoned it right away. They gave up and attacked their own bill. That's what they'll do. If, if it smacks of decency, they'll get scared. That it'll offend the base.
5: Yeah, just, yeah, and, Anyways, when does when everybody gonna say, like, fuck the base?
3: But <laughs> well, no. These are teabaggers, and you know when teabaggers go teabagging, they always take it straight to the base. Thank you so much! Brian, yeah. have a good evening. 866-997-4748. Chris in Oakland, hello and welcome.
2: John, good evening. How are you? So nice to talk Very talking. good. How
3: are you? Thank you.
2: Yeah, I'm doing probably doing better than I should, but I ain't giving nothing back. Hey, I'm not what I called to talk about, but listening to the president's remarks did not strike me as a guy with dementia. He sounds pretty sharp.
3: Yeah, exactly. He's an old guy who has a stutter. He's 80. He has a stutter. I always say, I'll take the old guy who needs a nap over the old guy who needs more defense attorneys.
2: (laughs) Speaking of that other guy, um, you strike me as a person of... Keeps up on current events pretty well. So you might have have caught an inkling of Donald Trump
3: at some point along the line, maybe saying something about no collusion, no collusion, no collusion. Yes, I I do recall him saying that once or twice, maybe.
2: Maybe, maybe. People are saying, it occurred to me on the way home that if Republicans, if Republicans in the Senate had voted to convict and remove him, after his following his first impeachment, they could have saved this guy from himself, and he might not, he probably wouldn't be facing the potential for straining his life. But why would they?
3: Don't, they don't care about him, and he doesn't care about them. So they, they wouldn't care already about saving him. I would never play chess with you. They don't care about so, saving him from himself. Go ahead.
2: Exactly. And that's why I wouldn't play chess with you, because you're smarter than I am. You already know where I'm going. But they didn't do that. They hung on to him, and they squeezed every screwed-up judge and every immoral tax cut that they possibly. Had. They let their yeah. just. They just let their fascist freak flag fly with this guy. Yeah. And now you know he's on his he's on his way out. And and if that happens, if he ends up in prison, and there's enough of that addled chunk of tripe between his ears left, I hope that he can connect the dots. And realize and have the epiphany to realize the exquisite irony of him, the guy who's trying to use these people, being used by these people and having his life destroyed. That would be that would be sublime.
3: But it's all the same, right? It's a cult of exploitation. Donald Trump doesn't care about the Republican Party. He's never cared about. the. He cares about himself. The Republican Party the Republican Party doesn't care about the party. They all care about themselves. They're not. uh, Who in the Republican Party has got a cause about people beyond the Republican Party? The only people they care about are people who aren't people yet. And that's fetuses. They don't care. No one's out there fighting for women, fighting for children, fighting for students, fighting for for minorities, fighting for immigrants. There's no group. They're fighting for people with trouble with medical bills. No, the Republicans only care about themselves. That's it. That's why they're so predictable. And that's why they always turn into a cult of selfishness. And they are going to eat each other before this guy is done.
2: And it's gonna be great. I'll get the popcorn ready. On a happier note, do you remember when I called a few months ago? About what? A saxophone and band? Yeah. So tonight we have a meeting. He's starting he's starting high school on Monday. I can't believe it. He's gonna be in marching band. They have to be in marching band to be in jazz band. So
3: he's gonna nice. be in
2: marching band. But um he's getting better and better. And I just wanna report that that every time he every time he plays Baker Street for me, it sounds better and better
3: nice man congratulations that's lovely thank uh, you tell so him, much be careful, careful in that heat please okay if you're on hold we will get to your call we'll be right back with more of your calls and Professor Corey Bretschneider because shit is getting heavy out there and what's going on in Israel I'm going to say at least today is crazier than what's going on here and that's saying quite a bit we'll be right back
6: slash P-O-P-P-O-D-S to get 50% off your first month.
3: Let's talk about everybody's favorite humanitarian leader in the world, Benjamin Netanyahu. Ugh. So you already know that his governing coalition is the most extreme far-right wing in the history of Israel. And they just passed this law through very narrowly a couple of days ago um, after months of mass protests and uh, even the White House criticizing it. But this new law that that pretty much takes away from the Israeli Supreme Court, their ability to reject some government decisions on the basis of their reasonableness standard. Uh, The Supreme Court can't overrule things the government might do. And now the Israeli Supreme Court might rule this whole law that strips it of power to be invalid, setting up an incredible showdown. And sometimes I don't even know who to root against. I need someone smarter and more moral than me. And it's not hard to find anyone who can do that, but we've got one of the best, Professor Corey Brett Schneider, the superhero professor with a PhD in politics from Princeton, a law degree from Stanford, and he uses them to enrich the lives in the poli-sci department at Brown. You've read Corey's stuff in the New York Times and Time Magazine. Get his book, The Oath in the Office, a guide to the Constitution for Future Presidents at a bookstore, and get his Penguin Liberty Series books on free speech, impeachment, and Ruth Bader Ginsburg's most notable cases. Corey, with all this madness happening in the American legal landscape, it's so Nice to see Israel at each other's throats. Welcome. <laughs> well, at least thanks, someone's Tom more at war with themselves intro. than us.
7: <laughs> yeah, thanks for that. Thanks for that intro promotion from professor to superhero is going to be the the biggest promotion. Anyone's well, received,
3: so I, listen, you. man, I, I've, I've watched you on TV. You managed to take these complex <laughs> issues. And no, I mean, you render it in such non-inflammatory common sense terms that I'm not capable of doing. You, you keep it calm. I, I get too upset and make inappropriate jokes and throw things. But I have to admit, I, I mean, like, you know, I love following uh, Netanyahu's corruption. It's sort of like one of those ongoing TV shows that I check in with now yeah. and again to hate watch. Um, but really, this is bigger than just Netanyahu being corrupt and yes. finding ways to keep his job. This, this could be like an entire showdown between two of the main branches of government.
7: Yes, you know, and you know, I think to put my cards on the table from the beginning, one of these branches, the the Knesset, the, the legislative branch, is really threatening to undo democracy in Israel entirely, and the idea that we're governed. By law, not by um, you know, just one dictator, um, and and that they're governed by law, not by w- one dictator. Uh, and one side, the the court is really, I think, trying to save it and might might save it. Although we'll see if it's too late. And when you see all these pictures of people flooding the Knesset and the street, just mass mass protests, huge, which is interesting, and and I do think this is different than than mass movements that we've seen before. They're there taking the side of the court. So the usual argument against the court is, well, who are these people? These are unelected judges. They have no credentials in democracy. And yet here the people are in the streets really taking the side of the court. And just to get get into it, and I thought your setup was was great. I mean, basically, in the United States, and I'll, I'll start with our country because I think there is a really important comparison, Uh, We don't have the idea that the the Supreme Court can enforce the First Amendment uh, guaranteeing free speech or religious freedom, as we'll talk about later, Mm. or equal protection of the law. There's nothing in the Constitution that explicitly says courts have this power. It began in the 18th century with a case where where Justice Marshall said, look, if we have the law, judges interpret the law, and the Constitution is the law, so judges have to interpret it. Now, switch to Israel, what does this have to do with Israel? They had a similar moment where the court said, look, we have to defend the most basic rights in a democracy. That's our role. Even though it doesn't say that, we, Israel doesn't even have a constitution, that's the nature of what it is to judge. And that happened much, much more recently, a few decades ago, rather than a few centuries ago. And what's going on now is, the, let's just get into it, what, what the Israeli court? has done, what, what their highest court has done, is to say that Palestinians have rights, too, the Palestinian citizens of Israel, for instance, or Palestinians in the territory. And the more that they've done that, that they've tried to say, part of democracy, is that everybody lives under law equally, and that means that everyone has rights, even minorities within Israel, as they've done that, the extreme right in Israel, which is increasingly taking over forming coalition, with mm-hmm. um, Netanyahu, uh, has said, we don't want you to do that. We're going to revoke your right to do that. Now here's the question. This is the big kind of idea question. Where does, the, where does the power of the court to defend rights come from? They said it doesn't come from the Knesset. It comes from the idea of the basic laws p- passed earlier by the Knesset, but also more deeply the principle of the rule of law, that judges have to defend basic ideas like equality under law. So yeah, that's why when the, the, the Knesset tries to strip the court of the power to defend basic rights, uh, I think what I would like to see them do and what they really might do is they can't do that. Our power doesn't come from your approval or not. It is in the essence of democracy that, exactly. that we have this power to defend basic rights. Did that make sense? That was a complicated series of words, but I'm open. Well, it's it's more
3: complicated. Yeah, no, no, it makes complete sense. But but it's also, it's quite complicated because we need to point out areas where our Israeli brothers and sisters have a government that's rather different from ours in some respect. Um, Israel doesn't really have a a constitution like we do, right? They have a series of of, of previous laws, uh, including the one that just got uh, uh, amended this week.
7: That's right. But I guess the, the argument that I'm making and, and you know, and the articles that are being written about this, that's exactly right. That, that's the factual difference. In our system, we have a written constitution, of course, ratified in the 18th century and then amended a series of times, according, including, very importantly, after the Civil War to guarantee uh, equal rights, equal protection of law. They don't have a written constitution in that way. Instead, they've had a series of Bills passed by the Knesset guaranteeing basic rights that the court is then interpreted to say, okay, these are fundamental to democracy. Now I guess what I'm saying is the similarity is this. Imagine that Congress, uh, you know, that Congress got even crazier than it is now, which is hard to imagine, but so much so that they had a two-thirds majority and they revoked the First Amendment. Right. Would that be allowable? Now, one theory says, well, okay, we have a procedure for revoking rights, so there's no longer free speech. Too bad. But imagine they got rid of it entirely. I think this is now my personal view, but I I think it's shared by a lot of scholars and it's an argument I'm willing to defend that free speech isn't just any right. It's a right that's part of democracy. And so it's not just because it's written into the Constitution, the courts have the right to defend it. It's because it's part of a legitimate society and I think that's what the Israeli court might actually say here that our ability to defend equal rights from Palestinians doesn't come because of any specific law even a basic law and it can't be taken away by parliament it comes from the basic idea of democracy and listeners are interested in delving into these ideas there's a, a Israeli supreme court justice who's like Really like their George Washington, I would say, or Lincoln, like a real founder of the country named Iran Barak, who in a book called The Judge in Democracy defended that idea that the judge's role in democracy was to defend the most basic rights, not because the Knesset said so, but because that's what a democracy is about. And, and um, yeah, and that's a, well, now I'm going to plug my own work. I have a book Please. that came out the same year as Iran Barak called Democratic Rights. And that's my argument, too, that, that in our country, courts get their ability to defend the First Amendment, equal protection, not from our written Constitution, but from the very idea of democracy. So I, I love this idea. It's controversial, and Barack's book and mine, frankly, was seen as, you know, kind of a rejection of the idea that parliaments or Congress makes laws and not judges. And I think our response is, no, democracy is about more than just what— Uh, Parliament says. It's about these basic values. I mean, think of the thing I'm talking about, What, what is really about this controversy. Do minorities have equal rights under law? That's so important to democracy that even if a crazy Congress or a crazy Knesset were to try to revoke it, judges would have an obligation to defend that idea. That's really what we're talking about.
3: I want to ask a couple more very basic questions about this, Corey, and then I I want to move on to stuff here. But this is so fascinating because we've I've never seen protests of this scope and ferocity in in Israel in in my lifetime of watching international news. And and again, um, Israel doesn't have a Senate so it just has right. right like they just have the main legislature the the, the main parliament yep. uh and then of course the prime minister so it's it's only the yep. two and and in the case of israel you know it would be like if the president and congress were always always the same party because it has to be that's so correct. that's the that's the dynamic so the only counterbalance of power in the entire government yep. is that legislative branch of the supreme court and that's why it you know that's the only possible check so I understand yep. that. And I understand that this whole kerfuffle is over the fact that um, they passed this law saying that the Supreme Court cannot overrule them. Their power is now absolute. There are no checks and balances. One party controls the government and that government can not be overruled by the Supreme Court. Can you just r- really quick explain to me how this is um, actually a threat to democracy itself in Israel? Because that's the part that I think some folks are having a hard time yeah. connecting
7: I think that you you know you summed it up really well that can you have a system in which all the power is located in one individual and they can do whatever they want you know let's just assume they were elected fairly that there was no fraud, uh, but what they want to do is to take away the basic rights of minorities, take away free speech rights, take away rights to be tri- you know not discriminated against um. That's really what's going on there. And and I think the answer to your question is that's not a democracy, that if all the power is given to one individual, even if they were the, you, elected democratically, they can become a dictator that undermines the principles and ideas of democracy. Now, what's to keep that from happening? And it's not abstract, really, to keep Netanyahu from becoming a dictator. And the answer is the court, the court yeah. which has been insisting on defending <laughs> the basic rights of individuals and and the ideas of democracy that that can't just do whatever you want disregard minority rights just because you're in power now in our system of course as you said we have more checks we have congress we have a supreme court but ultimately really sometimes all of those systems have failed And what do you go to you go to the people and the people Mm -hmm. sometimes have had to demand their own rights and that's exactly what you're seeing here the people backing up the court saying Uh, we're not going to accept Netanyahu as a
3: dictator. Uh, Corey, let me bring it back uh, stateside, because obviously things are heating up even more with uh, Jack Smith. We've all been expecting uh, a new indictment. Indictment watch has been trending all over the place. Um, They met today with Trump's lawyers and told them that uh, an indictment will be imminent, so it's just a matter of time. But I think everybody got surprised waiting for one indictment, and then suddenly Donald Trump received three more indictments, on himself for the classified documents case. I guess that brings the total up to 40 felony counts that he's been indicted with.
7: <laughs> yeah, and, the, the, you know, the, the, we have a new person named uh, who who conspired to, it looks like, erase evidence, to erase the tape because the quote-unquote boss told him to. And uh, yeah. this is a, a, a damning, you know, set of facts that, that it shows a kind of consciousness of guilt that he's trying so hard to cover up the evidence that he... He had these documents. It looks like there's another detail, too, coming out about um, him him showing the documents, you know, inappropriately to people working on a biography.
6: So (laughs) I was
7: expecting the January 6th indictment uh, possibly, and instead we got this other show, but it looks like looming, I mean, any day now is going to be not just another set of counts, but, but another entirely different case about January 6th, as well as there should be. And to my mind, looking at that kind of warning letter that was sent, it looks like the case is going to possibly echo uh, exactly what happened the January 6th committee. You know, they made an argument, as I said often when we were talking about it, not just to the American people, but directly to the prosecutors in the Department of Justice, that this case should be brought. And then they gave a roadmap of how to bring it. And uh, I'm waiting to see it, but I, I think we're going to see a close resemblance by exactly the arguments that we saw by the January 6th Committee and the Department of Justice. That's pretty profound and and historic.
3: Wow. I mean, it, I pointed out earlier in the show that the last time Trump's legal team met with Jack Smith's office was June 5th about the classified documents case, and three days later, he got indicted by a grand jury. So today they met. Right. It's a pretty safe bet that we will be seeing an indictment uh, tomorrow yeah. or possibly even on monday
7: yeah and you know just to, <laughs> to state the obvious how could there not be i mean we just the amount of evidence that we've seen against trump in in regard to january 6th and the election interference uh you know it, it, you, bringing the documents case but not that i i think really would have been a travesty It's time to really hold him to account and you know we, we were talking about israel in many ways it's a far off case and and way different than anything that we're talking about here but the issues are very similar you know are you going to have a president who has immunity from responsibility from prosecution Uh, can you get away with crimes with impunity and finally we have an argument saying uh, uh, possibly an indictment coming from the department of justice that says no we're not we're not going to allow an unaccountable president to get away with crimes
3: I mean, we've waited two and a half years, Corey. It's it's pretty we incredible. Have. But, you yeah. know, unlike the documents, unlike the Eugene Carroll cases, unlike the Trump Organization or Trump University, unlike Alvin Bragg, this is something we all watched on TV. I mean, this is the big one. This is the one that history yeah. has to answer for, isn't it? I mean, the eyes yeah. of history are still yeah. watching to see if anything is done to the person who led this terror assault.
7: Yeah, and, uh, you know, the mistake of Nixon as you know, I, I feel strongly was that he was never prosecuted. He went on to become a statesman. And Trump running around as if he's going to run again is uh, you know even more of an affront to, to the system of justice. So it, it took a long time to get here, probably too long. And you know, from the reports I'm, I'm reading, didn't need to, to last this long. And maybe there's a strategy behind it, but, but better late than never. Of course, the problem now is that we're running close to the election, and if this guy wins, uh, there's a real possibility that, guilty or not, he's going to undermine those charges and, and be the one that prevails. And, and then we really are in a system uh, in which democracy and rule of law have collapsed. And uh, yeah. it looks a lot more like the Israeli case that, that we were talking about.
3: So that is that is where we're at. I mean, we're we're yeah. less than a year away from the Republican convention. And as I pointed out on the yeah. show last night and today— he has five criminal trials between now and the beginning of that convention already scheduled. There's the the, the case of the uh, pyramid scheme that they promoted on, on um, uh, the Celebrity Apprentice show. That's finally coming to trial in January, as is E. Jean Carroll's next phase of her trial. Then there's Alvin Bragg. Then there's, uh, uh, of course, the, the um, oh, I can't even keep track of all of these. The Jack Smith case. Uh, we haven't even heard from Fonnie Willis yet. Corey, the big question is this they, they may meet. In Wisconsin. And Donald Trump is going to continue to fundraise off of these charges. If he's indicted two more times by the feds and Georgia, he'll fundraise off that. He could have a felony conviction by the time the Republican convention comes around. Should we start already planning to sell merchandise about a contested convention? (laughs) Because I, I, you have to believe that there's going to be some Republicans in this party, that Mitt Romney is just going to put on a, a, a liberation flag and lead a revolt against this, right? I mean, there will I, be I people so, trying to challenge where, his where nomination.
7: party is so corrupted. It is so deeply criminal itself, or at least complicit in criminality, to be more precise. Uh, I check, you know, weekly, sometimes daily, the 538 and other polls to, to see what his favorability is. And when is that dip going to happen. And it doesn't happen. It is so mm-hmm. sticky, as political scientists say. And uh, you know, his base are in a different informational universe. They're living in a world in which the political opponents of Trump are trying to get him through unfair means. Yeah. And uh, yeah. you know, that that's what they're seeing, and that's what they believe. And yes, you would hope that, that Bill Kristol or whoever in the Republican Party that was going to try to oppose his ability to get the delegates would succeed but they didn't succeed in the past and i am not so sure that they could succeed this time professor, you know, the conventions have rules they don't prevent him from running as of now if he's been convicted of these felonies certainly nothing prevents him from from serving yes. as president hey
3: exactly and, right uh, that's the law and order party he, he, he maybe can't yeah. vote anymore in florida <laughs> but he can right. go ahead and be voted yep. for Corey, what how can our listeners follow you professor and keep up with all your work Boy, I, like on something called X, I guess. Yeah, over on X. <laughs> that website with the X. Yeah, I know that one. Sure. Yeah, my, the one with the parental lock on it. Corey, thank you so much. It's great to hear from you. Have a great week and keep your family safe in the heat. We'll be right back with your calls. This is Progress.
0: Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you.
7: freaker or wherever you get your podcasts on because you know i love it when you do
3: this is sirius xm progress i'm john Fugelsang. the white house just so you know ruled out today the possibility of joe biden never pardoning his son hunter over federal tax and gun charges they asked corinne Jean pierre about it she said no I'm not going to say anything more than what I shared yesterday. This is a personal matter for Hunter Biden, a personal issue. And as you know, it's been done in an independent way by the Department of Justice. It has been led by a Trump appointed prosecutor. Can you imagine? Can you imagine if Joe Biden appointed a prosecutor to go after Donald Trump's kids and Donald Trump became president? Donald Trump allowing that case to continue for two and a half years in his presidency? Donald Trump allowing his son to plead guilty for anything rather than just dismiss the charges because that's what a real man does when he has power. Just incredible. Again, they say we will have no further comment. We are at 866-997-4748, 866-997-GRIT. Market, Wisconsin, thank you for waiting on hold. You're on SiriusXM.
8: Yeah, thanks so much for taking my call. I mean, I'm just continually amazed by the uh, new Republican Party trying to rewrite rewrite history, not only on slavery, but apparently someone wanted to rewrite it on the Holocaust. I mean, yeah. and maybe I shouldn't be amazed. I mean, it, it is just, uh, it's just jaw-droppingly, you know, that they bring one one little thing up, and they say, oh, yeah, they, they learned some valuable skills, you know, when they were sometimes when they are enslaved and brought to America.
3: I know. Can I I tell you the scariest part? Can I tell you the scariest part about our right wing fundamentalist uh, extremist Christians? The the worst thing about them? We We used to have slavery in this country. We used to have apartheid and segregation. This is the best version of right wing people we've ever had. Like, this is... These right-wing people are so much more moral and so much less racist than all their forebearers, and they're extremely amoral and extremely fucking racist. This is the best we've gotten right-wing people to be in this country. So think about that. Compared to the Confederates, <laughs> compared to Reconstruction, compared to segregation, they're actually quite mild on the evil douchebag scale.
8: Yeah, I yeah, I guess, but... I don't know if I'm, I'm willing to cut them any slack at all. I mean, I, I right. guess it, it just... It just slack... It just... I mean, I, I, I lost for words now. I was you know, carefully thinking on what I was going to say, but it just, just, um, I just it's lose shocking, my patience I know. with these people because it, it just is, you know, that that even post Civil War, I mean, post Reconstruction, especially, that because Re- Reconstruction was uh, was posting some real, real gains for African Americans, and uh, yeah, but that was only well, at, the, at the point of a bayonet, you know, the, the yeah, um,
3: and some real suffering for them too. I mean, yeah. in many ways, they just found all new ways to keep slavery going. Vagrancy yeah. laws were created to just put black men back on a chain gang.
8: Yeah, and it just is, and it, they, they they show no shame about it either. I mean, they find new ways to make excuses. Well, they're going to talk about all this stuff and and you know all the horrible things that happened, but you know, damn it, they learned some valuable skills, you know. And, and <laughs> can I, you I believe just, it? But those they learned those valuable skills as as just somebody. Increasing the value of a of a piece of property, I mean that's yeah. what it is. I mean that. Try uh, re- re- yep. reading some good historical fiction sometimes for those some of those folks. We'd like read Missionary's Chesapeake, which talks yeah. about slavery.
3: Oh yeah, talks about a whole Riddell, lot of other stuff, too. Some, Gore Vidal stuff is great too. Yeah, I mean like when I was a kid, I was taught slavery. In school, but it was all very abstract. You know, there were black and white pictures and books and drawings, and it wasn't about the real brutality. We, you know, maybe you see *Gone with the Wind*, which makes it look like a party, quite frankly. And then when I was in eighth grade, um, they made us watch *Roots*, the the miniseries on a VHS tape in school, and it destroyed me. Like it, it destroyed me, and I was committed to reading the book. And I read Alex Haley's whole book when I was thirteen. And that's what radicalized me at 13. I was like, oh, my God, I wasn't taught anything about slavery. This is what it really was. And ever since then, cut. I've... What's that? When, when they chopped off Kunta foot? Because he's yeah, well, and, 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 and they gave him a choice. They gave Kunta a choice, his foot or another part of his anatomy to cut off. <clears throat> but he wants children someday, so he lets them cut off his foot, which means he can't run away again. And I'm 13 years old reading this, yep. and it radicalized me. I never from that time on had any patience for anybody with a Confederate flag for the rest of my life. I, I just, yeah, they, we they still don't take it series. seriously.
8: When I was a kid, I think we got them from Green Stamps from the grocery store. It was American Heritage series on on American history and there was a picture in there I can remember just vividly of a slave ship you know, kind of cross-sectioned with the, uh, with the slaves packed in there like sardines and I go, and I just think I'm even at whatever age it was, you know, it must have been like ten, probably. And I said, "This ain't right. I mean, this just ain't right." And uh, yeah, and these people want to want to whitewash that. I mean, that uh,
3: you're right, you're right.
8: It just is, and they have no shame about it either. And then, but then they you know, that but then they got a whole media empire out there that's trying to make up, you know, trying to soft yeah. pedal. Oh, it's not really so bad, you know. It's 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 um. You're ignoring all the good things that this new Florida law is promoting, and I go, "Well, it's just utter nonsense that if you try to point point any positives over slavery, that then if you, it's you know, just, like mean, asking of kind the of question, push.
3: even even thinking about answering the like, what what an insulting, disgusting question! Like, if you're a decent person." And you could think of a positive from slavery. You wouldn't say it out loud because you're a decent person. It's all dog whistles. It's all Ron DeSantis competing with Donald Trump to let the racist know you're safe with me without actually coming out and saying the N-word. That's it, man. It's all this dog whistle stuff. It's all the constant going after the the whole notion of attacking wokeism. I mean, that alone, you're, you're literally attacking people for being aware of racism. That's it. You're not attacking racism. You're attacking people for being aware and pushing back against racism. That's the Republican Party now.
8: And, and what's sad is it was the Republican Party was founded um, by abolitionists, yep. Abolition and French socialists here in Wisconsin.
3: Oh, they know that part. That's part of their history. They know. You know, your Democrats started the KKK. Your Democrats started the KKK. When they say that, you change it and say, well, Confederates started the KKK. We can agree those confederates are evil right oh yeah confederate democrats evil yeah and and we probably should tear down those statues of those evil confederate democrats hey that's my heritage i mean just you know they just say things to think they're winning moment to moment keep your dignity and know the facts and don't let them make you crazy don't let them make you crazy
8: yeah i try not to and it's just uh you know, what's remarkable is, is I think I could tear any of these, any of these guys a new one in, in a debate. You
3: know that, Yeah, uh, but you don't need to. All you need to do is debate in front of people and let them make themselves look silly with their lack yeah. of historical information and with their lack of basic human empathy. And you can do yeah. that easy. You're smarter and more moral than me. Thank you so much, Mark, for calling. Thanks. Thank you very much. I want to run and get to another call before we hit the break. Hello to Sean and Callie. Sean, thanks for waiting on hold.
1: Hey, Brother John. So, you know... Everyone keeps saying, you know, Jack Smith, bringing these, you know, indictments and stuff. Let me clarify. we got to get our wording correct. It's Jack fucking Smith to everyone who knows what the fuck's going on here, all right? This is Jack fucking Smith. This is like John fucking Wick, and he's doing what needs to be done. And this is way long overdue. And, you know, when you fuck with our country, I have to admit, lots of people have committed huge crimes and gotten away with a lot of fucking stuff. But you want to have an insurrection, you know, uh, war against the seed of government because your ass is so fucking uh, traitorous that you want to make sure that you try to stay in power? This is what happens. Now, I grant you, I think it's happened a little bit too late, but mm-hmm. better late than never, brother, because this is what happens when you do this. And by the way, you are John fucking saying, especially when you're talking to those people who are evangelicals that pretend they love Jesus. But no, they don't no. love fucking Jesus. They want to discriminate. But well, they, I love you, know, you they, on that, man, too.
3: Thanks, man. Oh, anyway. But again, it's not that they don't love Jesus. It's that they've never actually read the Jesus parts. They, you know, like what they did with God. They created God in their own image. They created Jesus in their own image. Jesus hates the same people. The The amount of right-wing Christians who who try to tell me every day that Jesus supported the death penalty. I mean, it's just stunning. It's just stunning. Yeah, but when, when he said uh, only the sinless people could execute, he didn't mean the government couldn't do it. I literally had a guy say that to me today. I mean, they, 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 you oh know, Lord. it's cult thinking, the and they make themselves... The but look, they're going to look silly. We don't need to look silly when we debate them. We can stay calm. We don't have to hate them, because hate makes you stupid. Just have the facts. Have the empathy. Don't get angry. Don't hate them back. Don't let them make you crazy. And let their wives or co-workers or children be embarrassed by what they hear.
1: I'm trying my best. You know, I'm not a hater, but, you know, when someone attacks my country, I'm going to fight. And He's I mean, right on. seriously... Jack fucking Smith and yep. John fucking Fugel saying keep fighting.
3: And by the way, that's when someone ever give up when someone literally attacks your country, as opposed to when someone criticizes civilian governments, which we've always heard was the same as attacking your country. Thank you so much for calling, Sean. Really a pleasure. Quick break. When we come back, the life and the misunderstood and underappreciated legacy of one of the greatest liberals that's ever held office in this country. Don't go away. This is SiriusXM.
0: Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild conquer the weekend in the all-new hyundai santa fe visit hyundaiusa.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details hyundai there's joy in every journey
6: achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with bike clear aligners just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking what's your secret
3: This is SiriusXM Progress. I'm John saying 75 years ago, this summer, on the final day of the 1948 Democratic National Convention, Hubert Humphrey, who was only 37 years old, and the mayor of Minneapolis, <laughs> took the podium. And Harry Truman was running for re-election. This was the big Dewey v. Truman year. Harry Truman wanted it to be what? Middle ground, moderate Democrat, moderate Democrat. And young Mr. Humphrey gets on that stage and tells the delegates to get out of the shadow of states' rights and walk forthrightly into the bright sunshine of human rights. This guy gave the most liberal speech possible at a time when the entire presidency was at risk and a president, an incumbent Democrat, was trying to play it safe. Now, for many people, Hubert Humphrey is best known as Lyndon Johnson's VP in the 60s. Who stood by and supported Johnson as Vietnam got bloodier and bloodier and then lost the 1968 presidential election to Richard Nixon. And it's very sad because he was a profoundly decent man and a profoundly transformative figure in the history of Democratic Party politics. Our next guest is Samuel G. Friedman. He's an award-winning author, columnist, professor at Columbia University, former columnist for the New York Times. His previous books include Upon This Rock, The Miracles of the Black Church, The Inheritance, How Three Families in America Move from Roosevelt to Reagan and Beyond, and Jew vs. Jew, The Struggle for the Soul of American Jewry. None of these books will compare you for how incredibly current his new biography of Hubert Humphrey is into the bright sunshine it's an incredibly moving story about a figure who whose influence on the decency of this country before and during the civil rights movement cannot be measured what a great pleasure to welcome professor friedman to XM. well believe me john it's an even greater pleasure to be with you thanks so much for having me on uh, it's such an honor and i really really love your book you know i i always think of humphrey And my favorite expression of his, which was compassion is not weakness and concern Mm -hmm. for the unfortunate is not socialism, something I wish every Democrat could memorize and repeat every now and then. I want to start with a very obvious question for me. Did you have any idea when you began writing this book, how incredibly contemporary and urgent the message, activism and humanity of Hubert Humphrey would be to our present moment?
9: Oh, man, you asked the right question right out of the gate, John. I knew that I was writing about a part of history that I thought was undercovered by other books and under no underknown by the general public, which was not only Humphrey's role in the 1940s, this early wave of civil rights activity, but that whole decade of incredible civil rights activism in the 40s that really sets the table for the Montgomery school bus boycott and the things we know much better from the 50s and the legislation that Humphrey and Lyndon Johnson and Martin Luther King in their different ways collaborated on pushing through in the 60s. What I totally didn't expect was how much I'd feel like I was writing about current events because I started this book in January of 2015. It was the second term of Barack Obama. Marriage equality was going to be uh, declared a constitutional right in a few months by the Supreme Court. And again, I felt like I was you know, filling in a gap in historical literature But then November 2016 happened and we know what happened then. And as I was learning more and more about about the way Hubert Humphrey took on the white supremacists and the Christian nationalists and the America firsters of his time. And by the way, those were the exact terms in use then. Yes. Um, I realized I was writing about the past talking to the present.
3: Yes, I mean, this was the time when Truman desperately didn't want to lose the racists from the Democratic Party. You know, y- y- you set this story up of this compassionate liberal. And I want to give the full title of the book. It's Into the Bright Sunshine, Young Hubert Humphrey and the Fight for Civil Rights. It's very important. This compassionate liberal trying to morally lead his party forward, but constantly faced with having to make compromises with the establishment Democratic Party for the greater good of gradual progress just a little bit contemporary. I, I, I'm curious why yes. you chose to start this um, in the in the uh, Democratic Convention of 1948. I mean, he's best known as, as the VP in the 60s, and this book focuses a lot on his time as mayor of Minneapolis, where he fought bigotry. Why did you want to start it at that incredible moment in the middle of his life as a young 37-year-old mayor tempting the fate of the powers elite of his own party?
9: Right. Well, I felt that the later Humphrey was much better known. If people these days know Humphrey at all, they think of him for his catastrophic error of judgment in supporting the Vietnam War. They think of him having lost narrowly to Richard Nixon. And I think even more kind of the real uh, tarnish on his reputation came from getting the nomination in 68 during the Chicago Convention, having it delivered to him by the party bosses like Mayor Daley, amid the police riot against anti-war protesters and journalists. And then when he ran as very much an establishment centrist candidate in 72 against George McGovern for the Democratic nomination and just looked so frenetic and, you know, panicked and became an object of ridicule. So I felt like that was stuff we knew. And even some of the work he had done with Lyndon Johnson, valiantly on civil rights, Robert Caro's, You know written so authoritatively about that in his books i didn't feel the need to go there but there was this amazing period for humphrey personally and for the civil rights movement more broadly in the 40s that goes through the war years and culminates in the 1948 convention that a lot of people are only dimly aware of and john you're totally right about what it took in terms of Humphrey challenging the party um, establishment, and it wasn't just Harry Truman. You know, as much as many of us admire um, yeah, Franklin Roosevelt, about it. And revere him. Yeah. You know, R- Roosevelt <clears throat> had made this devil's bargain with the segregationist wing of the Democratic Party that if they would vote for him on election day and vote for his bills in Congress, he would not challenge them on racial segregation. And mm. Truman was prepared to follow the same script until Humphrey from the inside and civil rights protesters like if phil on the outside forced the issue
3: i'm so glad you cover that in the book because i think that we have to be able to place ourselves in the time young mr humphrey was operating and yeah we have our reverence for fdr we talk uh, as we should about the japanese citizen internment uh, the american uh, citizen of japanese uh, ancestry internment but in in the 1940s it was the Democratic Party in the South that was the party of white supremacy, right. as you point out very ably. And Roosevelt has to cut this deal to save Social Security and, and and try to appease the racists to hold the party together. And so the question is, who is this young mayor of a Midwestern state to come up there and actually throw down this moral gauntlet to to challenge the orthodoxy? And I I find it so fascinating to look at, you know, we think about these powerful icons in Democratic or Republican politics, the Bushes, the Kennedys, the the Roosevelts. Hubert Humphrey was really a a man of very modest origins, wasn't he? I I don't think you can really understand what made this young 37-year-old man take this kind of risk without knowing where he came from. No, you're right. I mean, he grows
9: up out in the grasslands of eastern South Dakota. The first thing that kind of forms his political identity is that even before the united states as a whole had the great depression with the stock market crash in 1929 there'd been an agricultural crisis in the dakotas really starting in the early 1920s so where humphrey grew up in his own family they'd been in you know economic uh, calamity for most of his childhood they lost their home they ultimately lost the little drugstore that they ran Humphrey and his older brother had to drop out of college to come and help the family get started in a different town. And as Humphrey would later write, seeing not only what happened to his family, but to the people they knew in their town, changed his view about what led to economic failure, that it wasn't personal, you know, Right. Failures of character. It wasn't, you know, being frivolous or spendthrift, that there were these meta forces of economics that could drag good people down and that you needed activist government to respond to that. So that's yes. the beginning of his political identity. But then what really makes him a civil rights crusader is um flash forward to 1939 he's 27 Mm -hmm. years old he's just finally gotten his bachelor's degree because he had to leave college for six years to help his family and he goes to grad school at Louisiana State in Baton Rouge oh yes he does and and there he lives in a Jim Crow society for the first time and that just sears him you know not only the things we all have in our image bank in our brains of separate water fountains and separate waiting rooms in the back of the bus but Humphrey would recall you know, seeing individual black people humiliated and degraded and reviled, like for walking across the street too slowly and making a white motorist wait at a stop sign or being afraid to get in an elevator in a state office building if there were white people in the elevator. And that really stuck with him and defended a basic decency. And also during that year in Baton Rouge, he studies for the whole year with this amazing professor named Ralph Eberly who is a one-eighth Jewish anti-Nazi sociology professor from Germany who's been kicked out of Germany stripped of his job left penniless and in the scramble to find somewhere for his family to live and for himself to work winds up at LSU and when Humphrey takes this class with him Eberly is partly teaching the research he had done in Germany which yes. was to answer the question How does a democratic society in two or three years become totalitarian? He was also talking about his own family's experience. And this is key, John. And he's mapping what he saw happen to the Jews in Nazi Germany onto what he has seen of blacks in the Jim Crow South. And that just gives Humphrey insights that he had never had before. And when Humphrey then goes back to Minneapolis in 1940 to start his career in public life, a lot of people would go north after being, you know, in the segregated south and like wipe their brow and say, thank God it's different here. Humphrey amazingly has a different insight. Having been in the south, he's now can see clearly the racism in the north and also yeah. the anti-Semitism in the north. and yeah. that just prepares him and you know we can talk more later but it prepares him to then be tutored by really important black and jewish influences on him in minneapolis who deepen his understanding and deepen his commitment
3: you know you also point out that at lsu uh mr humphrey had jewish friends for the very first time right but but it really is at the tutelage of of professor Eberly, who would escape the nazis that you know the the resistance to fascism and his natural empathy for the less fortunate really begin to come together. He tells this great story uh, about Professor Iberle, um saying if you were in Nazi Germany, mm-hmm. uh, how many would stand up to Hitler? Can you can you explain that story and, and the impact it made? Yeah, it, huh? they're like,
9: sure. Well, there are like 12 students in this seminar, all grad students, very elite academic company. And Eberly at one point looks across the room and says, as he was starting to quote, um, if we were in Nazi Germany, out of all of you maybe two would stand up to Hitler because Eberly had experienced firsthand complacency and capitulation and compromise people trying to save their own skin people thinking well Hitler's going to go for the Jews or the Roma or the gays or the disabled but he won't come for me which of course did not turn out to be true and Humphrey takes this so much to heart that he still remembered that quote from Eberly literally 60 50 60 years later and no about 40 years later i'm sorry and i think he took it as a challenge to him what side are you going to be on as the great labor anthem says are you going to be someone who stands up to tyranny or are you going to be someone who thinks that it can be appeased and that you can keep your own self safe
3: exactly right so he he runs for mayor uh he eventually is elected in uh mid-40s and reelected, and then he's mayor of minneapolis for for several years but it's interesting that, you know, this, this white man of modest means who went down south and came to appreciate the plight of non-Christians and non-white people in this country, he starts really taking on housing segregation. He starts, you know, in the 1940s, he's taken on employment yeah, discrimination and civil rights in the 1940s in, in the Midwest. How did it go for him? How, how much did he get done in this crusade? Well, well, he got an amazing amount done,
9: and I want to just quickly give credit to the, the two biggest influences on him, or the three. One is a black newspaper publisher, Cecil Newman, who has been fighting this lonely fight against all the forms of bigotry in Minneapolis. You know, everything from terrorist attacks on blacks who try to buy homes in white neighborhoods, to employment discrimination, to the dog whistle terminology that the mainstream newspapers use when they write about black life, which is almost always just a crime story. And then there's a Jewish guy, Sam Shiner, who Mm -hmm. similarly has been fighting this kind of one man battle against the very entrenched uh, Jew hatred in Minneapolis. And both of these people become close to Humphrey and they help deepen his knowledge, but he has political skills and political power and ambition that they by themselves can't possibly have. And so when he gets elected mayor in 1945, even in the city where the Jews and the blacks collectively account for maybe 3%, 4% of the city's population. Mm -hmm. He Mm -hmm. runs as a candidate for civil rights and human rights. And he immediately does two things. One is he sets about to make the city look at itself honestly in the mirror. And he actually brings two black sociologists from Fisk University, the HBCU in Nashville that later will educate John Lewis and Diane Nash among other people from the freedom movement and they oversee this study in Minneapolis to basically develop what we would now call a data set showing the uh, depth of of bigotry there and when Humphrey can confront the city with this he uses that as leverage to say now we have to pass a law outlawing employment discrimination now we have to pass a law outlawing housing discrimination and he moves forward on these issues and he also takes on the racism of the police force and If you read about what Humphrey was dealing with and trying to correct in the mid 40s, it's like the pre-sentiment of the the murder of George Floyd. It's really disturbing and creepy. And the one unfortunate thing about how quickly Humphrey moved into national politics is that that part of his agenda particularly was left unfinished. And the police
3: practices in Minneapolis reverted back to the awful norm. So it's, you know, he made the city. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's bringing this really, really aggressive approach to morality and decency and civil rights to the National Democratic Party, and Lord knows we've seen lots of progressives try to do that, Um, and and he's doing it in Minneapolis. I'm almost a bit surprised he got invited to the convention in the first place. I keep thinking of... You know the bernie friends and the hillary friends Mm -hmm. uh still at war with each other but but you know truman is in office now after roosevelt died and he's trailing thomas dewey and truman is desperately trying to hold together this coalition he'll keep all the segregationists he needs Um, I'm, i'm curious as hubert humphrey goes into this 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 man has this you know the the classic dilemma that a lot of people have do you do i help the party to win the presidency and go against my principles and accept this kind of compromise or do i say damn the consequences i've got to argue my conscience and if my party loses uh, then so be it uh, people have had this approach and it's led to donald trump becoming president in some swing states but what was hubert humphrey considering when he got to philadelphia well when he got to philadelphia and you said he's 37 years old he's only been
9: in elective office for three years he's the mayor of a mid-sized city and, you know, among liberals, he's starting to get well known for what he's accomplished on civil rights and, you know, human rights in Minneapolis. But he's still basically a kid. And because he's a terrific orator, he, among the insurgents who want to force the civil rights issue. And I should say, and this is important, and I know you'll agree with this, Humphrey understands you need to have the inside game and the outside game, that he's working with his allies within the convention, and outside a philip randolph the great black labor and civil rights leader is leading protest marches because he's been leading a national campaign to have black young men refuse to serve in the army or register for the draft if harry truman won't desegregate the military and humphrey understands there's a real important synergy between inside and outside and so within the convention hall he's tasked with giving the speech to try to convince the delegates to vote over and against Truman's wishes for a civil rights plank that will very explicitly do things. And he is worried about it. He has um, Truman's people to convention telling him, if you give this speech, it's the end of your career. Um, They call him a pipsqueak. Truman is writing in his diary about Humphrey and the other civil rights activists within the convention. And he calls them crackpots and Humphrey has to, you know, kind of somehow. Calm himself and, and, you know, remember what his core principles are, which he does and. know it. you know, he's on a mission, but he's not sure if this is going to be a suicide mission. Yeah. And and, we, you know, when you listen to the recording of the speech, you hear so much booing. And there's a lot of cheering, but he is just being hooted and catcalled, even as he's giving the speech. And so it's just a very audible, you know, we're here in the the world of radio, which I love in the world of audio. It's this audible reminder of the risk he was
3: taking. You know, his wife gets a bit of credit for this, right? She had a very very, uh, good bit of advice for him before he gave the speech. What did she say? Yes. Yes.
9: well Hubert Humphreys, a lot of us remember was garrulous to a fault and was a great speaker who could go on way too long if you let him and he had given a speech to an AFL union convention a couple months before the Democratic convention it was sort of a tryout actually for what he would say at the Democratic convention and it goes on and on and on and his wife Muriel says to him after Hubert "A speech does not need to be eternal to be immortal
3: Mm. The speech is only 10 minutes long. It's heard or seen on TV in 1948 by like 70 million people. What was the effect and and what what was the fallout after these words went over the airwaves?
9: You're right. It's amazing when we think of how scripted conventions are now. and A lot of us don't even watch them in real time. But yes, 60 million listeners on radio. They just started to put TV on Northeast Corridor. So 10 million watching on TV. And within the convention hall, the effect is, you know, great success because the delegates vote to endorse the civil rights plank. Harry Truman then has no choice but to run as a civil rights candidate. Two weeks later, he desegregates the military and desegregates the federal workforce. The last weekend before the 48 election, he becomes the first presidential candidate to give a speech in Harlem. And he wins his upset victory over dewey because of a surge of black voters in several swing states but the reaction to humphrey in the other way is an incredible amount of backlash we've seen this in the trump era you know you have a black president there's going to be you know backlash like you can't believe and humphrey wins this victory and the dixiecrats the southern segregationists walk out to run a third party yep. and the letters and telegrams humphrey got all of which i've read are really equally divided between praise and just incredible denunciations and not only from the south people from all over the country you know telling him you don't understand or you know you must come from a city with no blacks so that's why you're doing this or i hope your daughter marries a black then you'll understand you know what the problem is and just the most vicious kind of God. hate mail
3: so it really <sighs> you know again manifested the the daring it took to give that speech yeah it's it's great that all those democratic racists could find uh, other parties to go to eventually um <laughs> it starts you know, in 48 yeah <laughs> here's what's the most stunning part about this story to me sir You know, we think about Hubert Humphrey being 37 years old at the 1948 convention and using just brute force morality to shame his own party into greater Mm -hmm. decency. 20 years later, he is the nominee of his party to be president. But it's after he has stood by and supported Lyndon Johnson in the Vietnam War. And it's, it's so tragic to me that that has for many been what hubert humphrey has been remembered for that he yeah. helped enable vietnam and was a loser in a presidential race right. how do you draw a you know, line in this 20-year span from 48 to 68 Well, for one thing, in a way that
9: ended up leading to the self-inflicted wound of Humphrey supporting Vietnam, there was a part of him that had been a cold warrior all along. He was part of the anti-communist liberal movement, and he was, I think, too ready to believe in the domino theory and too ready to believe, he was certainly never a McCarthyite, but he was still too ready to believe that there was kind of a plan for communist subversion. Um, And even in Minnesota, he ended up parting ways with people on the left who had been his great allies at points in his career so when he supports Vietnam in a way a lot of people have given him I think a bit of a free pass and said he was just being loyal to Lyndon Johnson right. but even Humphrey himself later says there's this amazing conversation has with George McGovern that McGovern recounts in an oral history I read um this is long after the 72 campaign where they became adversaries and McGovern recalls Humphrey saying you know George I know people think I supported Vietnam just because of being loyal to Lyndon, But I want you to know I, you know, I did it because I thought it was right. I now know it was a terrible mistake, but I mm-hmm. don't want you to think I did it just to be, a, you know, party loyalist. And Humphrey would later say at the end of his life, he knew it was the gravest mistake he had ever made. And he certainly paid a price, paid a price for it. And, you know, I, I think also... The loss to Nixon doesn't damage his reputation nearly as much as the spectacle of him past his prime running as the establishment alternative to George McGovern in seventy two. That's when he really I think looked like his sell by date had passed. Because yeah. also what we know now is, you know, Richard Nixon did a dirty trick to, you know, tell the South Vietnamese not to go into peace talks that Humphrey yeah. wanted to undertake. Because he would cut them a better deal. And arguably, the reason Humphrey narrowly lost is because
3: of Nixon's dirty trick. That's right. It's just, it's so sad to think about that this is someone who clearly, I mean, as the 1948 convention proves, wasn't going to put his morality on the back burner for the sake of party unity. Um, And yet that's what he's accused of. And then, of course, this is the 68 Democratic convention, one of the most notorious conventions ever incredible numbers of anti-war protesters it just got so ugly it made the democrats look like the pro-war party Mm -hmm. at war with the chicago police and it and again hubert humphrey isn't responsible for all that but it made him look like he was on the side of the authoritarians didn't it right well you know you live with your choices
9: and as you know as admirable person i think humphrey is on balance He was an ambitious person who wanted his chance to run for president, and this was gonna be it. And if it was gonna be delivered to him, you know, by the machine forces at the convention, then he wasn't gonna turn it down. And I think it's also important just to put this in context. In 68, you didn't have as much of, of the nomination decided by actual primary votes. And also the person who was probably going to win Bobby Kennedy had been assassinated. So you did have this very, very unusual convention in which the party, you know, Mandarin's held a lot of the votes and, you know, and controlled a lot of it. The favored candidate had been killed and it was unclear who his delegates were going to. So this doesn't let Humphrey off the hook, but it does, I think, help understand why, one way or another, that convention was going to be decided more by you know the smoke-filled room than by what we're used to now which
3: is seeing who won the most delegates in the primaries but i think it's also why your book is so moving and so needed because this man deserves a deeper look into his work his labors his legacy his mission this man is an unsung hero and the Democratic Party becoming the party of civil rights. And he's an unsung hero in the civil rights movement itself. I'm so grateful to you for uh, devoting your time and talents to these years of bringing this story. I'm so glad, you know, you say those things,
9: because I've certainly felt that way. And something that had kind of confounded me as I was working on this book is, thanks to the work of Robert Caro and Robert Dalek and Nick Cotts and other authors and Robert Shankman's play, later adapted for HBO, all the way with Brian Cranston, playing with Johnson. Mm -hmm. Great. And we can understand now that there are these two parts of Johnson. There was the horrific decision about Vietnam, but there was this incredibly courageous body of legislation on civil rights and the social safety net, the Great Society. And you have to look at it all in total. And finally, in the last five, 10 years, people have been able to hold the totality of Johnson in their minds and you know and with humphrey i kept asking myself why do we only remember the worst things he did and he shouldn't be let off the hook but unlike johnson he'd gotten no credit widely for being out there actually 15 years ahead of lyndon johnson on civil rights ahead of so many other white politicians in the country and when you read the correspondence humphrey had with people like a philip Randolph and walter white from the naacp they understood what a unique ally he was and you know to go back to that 48 convention at that convention where humphrey has to convince the party to endorse civil rights there are 1500 delegates and alternates 17 are black 17 out of 1500 he's going to have to convince a like whatever that is 99.5 percent white group of delegates to you know vote against what truman wanted vote against what fdr had wanted and endorse civil rights that's amazingly bold
3: Samuel Freeman, it is such a pleasure to have you on our show. The book, once again, is a beautiful and moving book, Into the Bright Sunshine, Young Hubert Humphrey and the Fight for Civil Rights. Professor, what is the best way for our listeners to follow you and keep up with your work?
9: Uh, well, Elon Musk's people hacked my uh, Twitter, so I'm not on Twitter. I don't think I'd go back on it at oh, this no. point. Oh, you,
3: no. I, I followed you. I, I,
9: that's not you anymore? I'm so sorry. <laughs> that's not me. That's a fake account. But but you can find me on Facebook. If anyone wants to email me directly, I'll always respond to a, right. a personal email at my address at Columbia University, sgf1 at Columbia.ed, or just Google me. But uh, that's that's the best way to get to me, either email or through DMing me or, or following me on Facebook. And I'm going to
3: have to get on thread or one of these alternatives, but yeah. I haven't gotten around to it yet. I hope you will. I want to get the word out about this book. Uh, it's the kind of book for anyone who's a fan of history, civil rights, or wants to understand how the Democratic Party got a lot better. Thanks to men like you. Thank you. Thank you so thank you. much, Professor Friedman. What a great pleasure.